Well, the vagina is really quite magical, I think, and probably a lot of people in your audience would agree with that. Welcome back to the Rena Malik MD podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Rena Malik, urologist and pelvic surgeon. Today, our guest is Dr. Danielle Jones. Dr. Danielle Jones, widely known as Mama Dr. Jones across social media with over 2 million followers across multiple platforms, including YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitch, is a wonderful wealth of information about obstetrics and gynecology. She has dedicated much of her time to educating the general public on issues related to women's health. She's a huge advocate of improving maternal outcomes with pregnancy. You can follow her on all social media platforms as Mama Dr. Jones. Today, we talked about what happens when you have sex. Does that cause loosening of the vagina? Can you have sex during your period? And what happens with your gastrointestinal system during your period, causing you to have looser stools? We also discuss vulvar and vaginal hygiene, fibroids, endometriosis, and she shares with us a health hack on how to remove stays in your underwear that you get from menses. Some of the best moments in life are spontaneous, unplanned, but for men dealing with moderate to severe erectile dysfunction or ED, preparing for intimacy can rob you and your partner of spontaneity. The joy of living in the moment. Now you can restore that spark in your relationship with the AMS 700 implant, a clinically proven permanent solution designed for your satisfaction and your partner's it's the number one physician-preferred implant. It's built to look and feel natural. Happy partners agree. 92% of patients and 96% of their partners report sexual activity with the implant excellent or satisfactory. It gives you the ability to respond to your partner's wishes in the moment, not minutes or hours later. The AMS 700. No pills, no injections, no waiting. For more information, visit edcure.org slash podcast. That's E-D-C-U-R-E dot O-R-G slash P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Sponsored by Boston Scientific. Guys, do you ever find yourself dragging through the day, low on energy, having trouble in the bedroom, or just not feeling like yourself? You might be experiencing something more common than you think, testosterone deficiency or low T. Did you know that low testosterone affects about 40% of American men over 45? As men age, testosterone levels continue to decline. You might notice signs like impotence, changes in sexual desire, depression, reduced muscle mass, or even fatigue. But here's the thing. It's not just about low T. It's about your overall well-being. That's where Rethink Testosterone comes in, a great resource for all men to learn about how testosterone affects their bodies. Rethink Testosterone is your go-to platform with tons of educational content and evidence-based scientific studies that go over everything you want to know about testosterone, from how low testosterone affects you to the common myths about testosterone replacement therapy and options for treatments. So check out RethinkTestosterone.com, your hub for all things testosterone and low T. Rethink Testosterone is on a mission to change the narrative and stigma around men's hormone health. Why wait? Visit RethinkTestosterone.com today and consider checking your testosterone levels. Always remember, you're worth it. Rethink testosterone because understanding your health is the first step to owning it. Head to www.RethinkTestosterone.com today and make taking care of your body a priority. I am so honored to have you on the podcast, Danielle. It is truly an honor. And for those of you who don't know, 
Dr. Jones was actually my inspiration for starting a YouTube channel. So this is truly a meaningful moment. That's that's so nice. I, I didn't know that until today and it means a lot to me. And I think you have done, I was telling you this earlier, but I genuinely think you've done an excellent job. It's not easy to start a YouTube channel and to be successful at it. And you've you've done awesome. So thank you. Great thank job. You. So let's get right into it. We are gonna talk about sex. Look, you know, that's what we do. I feel like both of us. <laughs> that might shock some other people, but so a lot of guys on my channel will ask, is it true? Can you get loose with too much sex? The easy answer to that is no, obviously to us, but I think a very common misconception. Yeah, the vagina is made to expand and go back. It's like a rubber band and you aren't going to change it. So, you know, I think a lot of guys actually, maybe I'm wrong, but sometimes they're like, you know, I take a little pride in that, but it's, yeah, it's not true. Yeah, not true. Right. And then, you know, I think when the term loose, right? It's really an essence of like your pelvic floor, right? And so like when your pelvic floor is weak, it can be perceived as a little bit, I guess, looser would be the term, but as not related to how many partners you've had or how much sex you've had. There are muscles there and that's the primary makeup of the pelvic floor and Kegels and things like that obviously help with pelvic floor support. So we care about that much more from like a well-being and life standpoint because having a strong, healthy pelvic floor is important for continents for just general how you feel sitting right. and getting standing and so yeah i mean shout out to the pelvic floor physical therapist because absolutely I think they are incredible and they really are yeah yeah and and you know the function of the pelvic floor or the way to strengthen it or weaken it is due to having babies right and standing for long periods of time and chronic coughing and being overweight and there's multitude of factors neurologic conditions that can affect the pelvic floor but it's not because of either the size of the penis or the number of partners that you've had. Exactly. And, you know, I think a lot of guys have concerns about having sex during periods, during pregnancy. So let's talk about that. Yeah. Is your audience mostly male? Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So obviously mine is the opposite, but yeah. <laughs> um, so it's fine for a low risk pregnancy, you know, in the absence of certain conditions, there's no reason you can't have sex during pregnancy. Now, some people feel like that makes them uncomfortable and that's fine. I think you have to really take into account what your partner thinks, how you think, and how how does it feel? Because for some people, especially when you're moving into the third trimester, it can become really uncomfortable. Yeah. For other people, they are extremely into having sex and that's like a very great time for them. And a lot of people look very fondly on that. I think it's very individual, but nothing dangerous about it. Now, if you have a placenta previa or a low-lying placenta, you've had bleeding during pregnancy, particularly if it's undiagnosed, certainly if your water has already broken, these are like hard stop. These are bad ideas, but in most pregnancies, it's fine. And so people would know they have a placenta previa because they'd find out from their ultrasound. Exactly. So we see that in ultrasound, usually at the like 18 to 20 week scan. A lot of them, most of them resolve by 32 weeks. Mm -hmm. Previa means the placenta is overlying the cervix and you don't want to have sex with that or do anything that could stimulate the cervix and because it can cause massive bleeding. And so that is a very hard pregnancy condition to have for people who are interested in having sex in pregnancy. I have colleagues who say, oh, you shouldn't even orgasm. That could be dangerous. I don't think the data is really there on that. So I kind of counsel patients, you know, you can do whatever you want as long as there's no like physical 
penis or toy in vagina because that's a dangerous part. Orgasms, I guess, I mean, they just really cause strong contractions of the pelvic floor. So are they worried that, I mean, I guess it can cause uterine contractions too, right? Yeah. So there is some uterine stimulation there. um, And I guess that's the theory behind it. But I I just don't think the data is there. Not enough for me to counsel someone who really wants to have other types of sex with a pregnancy complication that they can't. Right. Now, I everybody should listen to their own doctor. You know, I always right. say that I'm, I'm a doctor, but I'm not your doctor. So if your doctor counsels you otherwise, then that's the advice you should follow. Yeah, yeah. So then about, since we're talking about these anatomical areas, a lot of, so there is some discussion about like cervical innervation and how some people can get cervical orgasms and others can't. Tell, talk a little bit about that. I think everybody can. I think it's just like any other orgasm. Um, there's people who, shockingly, you will find so many people, women, AFAB people who have never had an orgasm mm-hmm. despite being sexually active their whole life. And I, when I hear that, I'm like, oh my gosh, we have so much work to do, but it's okay. We can get there if you want to. And I think cervical orgasm is the same. So you have to know kind of what you like. Some people just don't like that because yeah. it often t- takes um, really deep penetration, which for some people is really uncomfortable, especially if you have endometriosis or certain other things. But yeah, I think anybody can. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of misconception about the innervation of the cervix. I've had people tell me like there's no nerve endings in the cervix, which is <laughs> every time I'm like, <laughs> I think anybody who's had a colposcopic biopsy would disagree with that, right? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I think anybody can, but you have to, uh, great resources. So Beducated is mm-hmm. wonderful, um, not sponsored. Um, OMG, yes. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. These are two great resources for anybody who wants their sex life to be better. Yeah, absolutely. Men, are you still searching for a solution for your erectile dysfunction? You know, the frustration of pills and injections and pumps? By the time you're ready, the moment may have passed. You and your partner can no longer enjoy the thrill of spontaneity, and scheduling time for intimacy may be a disappointment. Now, there's a way to be ready in the moment for as long as you need. The AMS 700 implant is a permanent ED solution designed for your satisfaction and your partners. Happy partners agree with 92% of patients and 96% of their partners reporting sexual activity to be excellent or satisfactory. So go ahead. Live in the moment with our clinically proven physician-preferred AMS 700. Learn more at edcure.org slash podcast. That's E-D-C-U-R-E dot O-R-G slash P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Sponsored by Boston Scientific. And then um, speaking of not orgasming, right? Like the percentage is like 12% of women have never had an orgasm. I had a, a very good friend recently tell me that and I was like, <laughs> like here's all these websites go you know and yeah. like what do you make of that i get it right in school you learn about sexual education in terms of uh, protection and in terms of consent and you only have so much time dedicated to sexual education but the rest of sexual education for majority or a lot of people is through pornography yeah. which is not realistic yeah. right it is you are literally seeing people penetrate, immediately climax, or immediately orgasm, and then it's over. And they're simultaneously orgasming and all these things, and there's all this squirting and ejaculation volume. None of this is accurate to real life, right? So one, you're setting up a situation where like the, the male partner, if it's a heterosexual relationship, thinks like that's all I need to do. 
and the female partner thinks something's wrong with her because she's not reaching climax and she's like maybe that's just it like i don't know what an orgasm is maybe i don't really know and so i think it's a lack of education and then like we're kind of a prude society yeah right we don't talk about sex we don't talk about orgasms i mean the fact that your friend told you probably because you're open about talking about it but like most people are not talking about it right and so my take on this is i think the primary reason that there are people who have been sexually active for long periods of time and would like to have an orgasm and haven't ever experienced that is because we are taught growing up that you're not allowed to figure out your own body and what works for you. I don't think you can orgasm within a relationship, um, at least not in the way that I think most people would imagine a great sex life without first doing that by yourself. Yeah. And I, I think that that's the first step. And that's why I really like the um, website I was just talking about OMG yes because I think they teach you in that way yeah like here's the information about your body here are various ways to figure out what you like what makes you tick and then you can start to share that with a partner right it's super important and I think the other thing that you need during a sexual encounter is to be completely vulnerable right like you have to be willing and open and that's really hard yeah a lot of people it's hard to get out of your own head sometimes I mean I think we've all experienced this um, to some extent especially people who you know are really stressed or have lots of stuff on their plate children make it even you know there's always something to be thinking about but yeah, that vulnerable connection and ability to 100% fully trust your partner, particularly if you are having trouble with climaxing, is really important. Yeah, absolutely. What about women who come to you and ask about first-time sex? What are some tips or tricks that you tell women about having first-time sex or wish that you could tell all women about having first-time sex? I think... I practiced a lot a long time in Texas. That's where I did all my training and main portion of my private practice. And I often not get people to my office before that. They would come in after having an experience that was either underwhelming or traumatic. But if I could tell people one thing, it would be you have to learn yourself. Like I really, really strongly encourage people, whether I grew up in and I practiced for a long time in the middle of the Bible Belt, purity culture, all of this. So I am sensitive to the fact that some people would like to wait until marriage. I don't have feelings about that. I'm very neutral about that. But if that's the group of people that you fall into, I would really strongly encourage you to learn about your own body, explore your own body first, and that communication with your partner is key. You need to be able to talk about sex. You need to be able to talk in the bedroom. You need to be able to express how you're feeling, what's going on, feeling good, feeling bad, and have somebody who's willing to slowly move there with you and not just expect mind-blowing sex the first time. And I think communicating about sex is hard. Uh, you know, I'd love to, I give a lot of tips on my channel about communication, but I'm no communication expert, and I'm sure but we communicate with our patients all the time. But do you have, you know, tips, tricks, things that you like to tell? It's hard. I mean, I grew up in that culture where we didn't talk about it, and so did my husband. And so it took us a long time to get there. And I wish that was something that we had learned earlier in our relationship. But it's just being trusting and okay with vulnerability and i think all of that just comes down to safety in the relationship so if you're somebody who struggles with communicating about sex you're not going to have a great experience with a one-night stand i think one-night stand multiple partners whatever makes you tick is great but if you're the person who's struggling with the communication aspect it may not be the right time for you for that yeah um and then within a relationship it just starts with little things you know I think there's a really great sex educator who has a video um, where she talks about, 
what does she call it? Sexual currency, I think she calls it. And so it's basically like flirting and things like that through the day, uh, expressing gratitude, uh, appreciation to your partner or whatever it is they like. And I think this is the primary form of foreplay uh, for a lot of women and AFAB people because foreplay is not necessarily physical. I think a lot of people view it that way. This is going off on a tangent, but a lot of people view foreplay as like a very physical thing and it can be. But I also think there's a lot of headspace um, foreplay that goes on, especially for people who are really cerebral. And I think there's a lot of men and uh, AMAB people who also fall into that category, but we're kind of never told that that was okay because they're supposed to be visually stimulated. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of men actually do it up here too. Absolutely. So I, I will tell you, I see so many men who come to me and they are having performance anxiety, which then cycles into poor performance, which then gets more anxiety, which then it becomes this vicious cycle. And it's in there, like a lot of it is in their head and it's normal, right? They are going into an encounter with this, like they have to perform a certain way. And if they don't perform a certain way, they fail. Like it's like very not binary for them, which is not true, right? You can, sex is not just penetration. There's so much more to it. And you can bring all of that to the bedroom. And, you know, I think, there's also a lot of like joking, right, in society, like, oh, he's not like I want a 12 inch penis, okay. whatever, right? And so that all plays into it. So absolutely, there's a lot of headspace that goes into it, right? And um, in both parties. Yeah, I've seen a lot of varying data and opinions on this, but how do you feel about porn and the way that it can negatively or maybe positively impact performance for people who have penis? Yeah, I mean, I think just like I said, it makes these really unrealistic expectations of what sex is going to be like and how you should perform and how women respond if you're in a heterosexual relationship. And when you watch porn, it's usually, and a lot of people who watch it will watch things that they're not actually ever going to do in real life, which sometimes are maybe more aggressive, more violent, more out there, right? And so that can have a negative impact. But I don't like to shame people. I think there are many, many people who use pornography safely and are able to like have a wonderful sex life, enjoy their partner, enjoy their sex life and still watch pornography recreationally. So I think that, you know, not everyone has a problem with it. They realize that it's separate. I really worry about like our kids generation because it's so accessible. I think it's extremely comparable to alcohol. There's lots of people who drink and it's no big deal. Mm -hmm. But if you fall in the category where it's either problematic or you become aggressive when you drink or it's an addiction, like there's so many ways that it can become a negative thing. And I feel the same. One of those ways is similarly to alcohol, early exposure and continued early use throughout the teen years, which, right. which is scary. Yeah. With our kids generation of what do you think is the answer to that? Because we can't fix it. Making pornography a discussion right with your child which is really hard to do because we don't talk about sex but saying like you're gonna probably come across videos that you might have questions about that might um, seem very interesting to you and I'd love to talk and answer those questions for you and I think you know the same thing with masturbation pornography we as a culture the gut reaction is don't ever do that Turn that off. That's disgusting, right? Mm -hmm. And people immediately become shameful. Yeah, right. It's very internalizing. Yeah, it's very quickly. And so I think that's something we have to shy away from. And I think, unfortunately, whether they see it in our home, they see it with their friend's phone, they see it wherever, right? Like they're going to see it. Right. So we just have to cope with that. Yeah. In my year of parenting, I think the number one thing I think has made a big difference in helping my kids in situations that could be a struggle, whether it was when they're a toddler and 
or going out to a restaurant or whatever it is, you know, anything that could be hard is giving them warning before so that they can set expectations and they really respond well to that. So I think that talking to your kids, just like you were saying, of you may come across videos or pictures that are, you know, it seems interesting. And then if we make it taboo, that makes it even more interesting. So, you know, ask me questions and know that like you probably shouldn't always be seeking them out because here's what can happen in the same way we talk about alcohol, you know? Right, exactly. So this is kind of serious. Let's move back a little bit. <laughs> Let's talk about, you know, a lot of people because, you know, as I mentioned earlier, like people are obsessed with penile length and Let's talk about vaginal length and how that changes during intercourse, during arousal. And well, the vagina is really quite magical, I think. And probably a lot of people in your audience would agree with that. The reason penile length is really not as much of a concern in real life as it seems to be brought out in movies and pop culture is because the vaginal length changes with arousal and it accommodates whatever it needs to from a finger to a baby. It doesn't matter. But in the absence of arousal, having, you know, a well-endowed partner, particularly from a girth standpoint, can be problematic. So the opposite, actually, I feel like is more true more often. I think people who have penises way over obsess about, about size. I don't think it matters as much as people feel like. Yeah. I mean, I think you can absolutely pleasure any partner, male or female or whatever, however they identify, with any size penis. Because actually, I, I would venture to say that the penis is not a big factor in Female pleasure life. for people who have a vagina because that's not how most people will climax. So Exactly. Yeah. So I've said it like a hundred times on my channel, the clitoris is the most reliable route to orgasm and pleasure. So, you know, absolutely. You're not hitting that with a So start there and then you can expand into other things once you are real comfortable there. Yeah. You know, we hear about like retroverted uteruses, anteroverted uteruses. How does that play into pleasure or discomfort during sex? Not a lot, probably. I explain antiverted and retroverted uterus in patients, like when I'm talking to them as being left or right-handed. Most people are right-handed. Some people are left-handed. That would be equivalent to retroverted uterus. It doesn't really make a difference. It's not caused by anything. It's not negative or positive. But you do have a higher incidence of retroversion in people who have severe endometriosis because the uterus can get scarred to the back wall of the pelvis. So in that situation, then certainly you would see a overlap, but more of a confounding factor of people having a retroverted uterus and it causing more pain with deep penetration and things like that, but more because of the endo, not the, the placement. Let's. Hey guys, low testosterone or low T affects about 30% of adult men in America. Are you feeling the drag of fatigue, noticing a dip in muscle mass, or sensing a slump in your libido? You might have low T, a condition that can significantly impact a man's life. Get your testosterone level tested. Kaizotrex is an FDA-approved pill that's changing the game in testosterone replacement therapy. Kaizotrex was shown to be effective in restoring testosterone levels in nearly 9 out of 10 clinical study participants. Each Kaizotrex oral capsule is uniquely formulated to be easily absorbed and bypass your liver to avoid liver damage. Patients also saw a decrease in sex hormone binding globulin and an increase in free testosterone. It's time to break free from injections, pellets, and gels. Choose Kaizotrex and take a step towards being the hero of your life. By prescription only, Kaizotrex is a controlled substance and can be a target of abuse. 
Kazitrex is not for use in pregnant women or men with prostate or breast cancer. Safety and efficacy in those younger than 18 is not known. Tell your doctor about all medical conditions and medications. Serious side effects could include increased blood pressure, worsening prostate symptoms, increased risk of prostate cancer, blood clots in the legs or lungs, decreased sperm problems, liver problems, enlarged or painful breasts, and breathing problems while you sleep. Common side effects include swelling of the ankles, feet, or body, increased red blood cell count, and increase in prostate-specific antigen or PSA levels. PSA is a test used to detect prostate cancer. Report these symptoms to your doctor. Call your doctor to learn more about Kaizatrex. For questions or more information, visit www.kaizatrex.com or call 1-833-949-5040. Do a quick discussion of endo. I know there's many women who are affected with it, and it is a very life-altering diagnosis. And I'm sure if there are partners who's, who have partners with it or there are women listening who have it, they'd love to learn a little bit more about it. Yeah, so endometriosis is where tissue that are cells that are similar to the lining of the uterus, the endometrial lining, cells that look similar to that go places they shouldn't be or show up places they shouldn't be. The most common places would be in the pelvis and the pouch of Douglas along the uterosacral ligaments, but it can be anywhere. It's a very fascinating disease. So in med school, probably both of us were taught it's from retrograde menstruation, right? So when you have a period, some of that blood goes out of the tubes and into the pelvis. This causes endometriosis, but that's not true because we've found endometriosis in cis men. We've found endometriosis in people's brains and lungs. Like, obviously, this is not the route. Right. So it probably is more similar to cancers that can kind of spread both by seeding and by lymph or blood transfer, but also embryologically, probably when you're forming, there are potential to grow in places like that. So it's a confusing disease. There's not nearly enough uh, research and data on it, and it often takes years for people to get diagnosed. They're often gaslit. Endo is really interesting because when we look laparoscopically, I can see a completely frozen pelvis and the patient had no symptoms. They didn't even expect to find endo on the surgery. Mm -hmm. And I can have somebody who has horrible pain. We know it's endo because they've responded to the medications that we're using. And I do a scope and there's nothing visible. So it's interesting in that it's a disease that doesn't correlate very well from symptoms and what it looks like. Yeah. I think in general, pain conditions and women's health conditions, unfortunately, are very understudied. Mm -hmm. It is what it is, but we need to change that. There's so much work to be done for these people who are suffering and need to get better. Yeah. And it's undervalued, I think, in general in the medical community. And if you talk to any individual person, they would never say that. But You've probably seen the study that came out over RVU comparisons mm -hmm. and how I can do a labial biopsy in my clinic, which is arguably almost identical to doing a scrotal biopsy. And the reimbursement for a scrotal biopsy is significantly higher and lots of kind of correlative procedures are the right. same. So that I think is enough objective evidence for us to go, yeah, this is undervalued. People are not placing the same value on children's health as well. Women and children, I think, are, are where we see that happen. But mm. Well, and like I said, I think pain conditions too. And people, sure, yeah. people want, either don't want to do the research on it or don't want to fund it. Because and it's, it's hard for doctors. So we contribute to that as well, right? Because yeah. I like to be able to make people feel better. But with chronic pain conditions like endo, and I'm sure you deal with several of them too, pelvic floor dysfunction and things like that, it can feel really bad as a doctor because you're not always able to make the difference that you really would like to and some people just kind of like write it off and won't take care of it because of yeah. that yeah and I you know I will say I do take care of a lot of 
um, pelvic pain or interstitial cystitis for both, you know, men and women. And I find that they're very reasonable patients. They've been through a lot and they realize that this is a chronic condition. They're not there looking for a quick fix. And so I think ultimately, like, it's getting on that same playing field with them. But you're right. A lot of people feel very frustrated because they don't have an answer. And it's really hard to, as a physician, we're taught to fix things and to know the answers. And you want the straightforward. You come in, I fix you, you're gone, like you're feeling better. Um, So it can be very challenging. Yeah. I think the most useful thing that I have over the years learned to do with especially chronic pain or undiagnosed different conditions and my patients is just they come in very educated a lot of times. If they've been dismissed by the medical system, then they've learned a lot about what's going on with them and what they think is going on with them. So I always like to lead by asking, like, what do you think this is? What do you want me to look at? Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you want to talk about? And also to tell them, because a lot of them just want to be heard. Not that that fixes it, but it makes it establishes kind of a, we're on the same team, we're on the same field, like you're saying. So I always try to tell them, like, I may not be able to fix you immediately. And this medicine I'm giving you may not work, but please don't disappear. We have to work together. We can try several things. All I need you to do is come back and tell me if it's not working. Right. I think that's really valuable because I think they often feel like they're a bother to the doctor or to the system or whatever. And when you invite them to come back, even if it's not helping, I think that can be really useful for establishing rapport. Absolutely. All right, let's move on to a little bit about libido. Women's health libido is a very, I think, under-discussed topic and always sort of like what's normal, what's not. But let's talk about that. When women come to you and say they're concerned about their libido, you know, where do you go with that? This is really complex because libido has so many facets. So you have to take into account, you know, the relationship, somebody's age, what's going on with their hormones, what medications are they on? What was it like before? Was everything good and then suddenly something changed? Or was this a gradual change over time? Or has it never been there? Mm -hmm. Because you do have people who are asexual. They don't have libido and that's not abnormal. That's okay, you know, if it's not bothering them, in which case they may or may not be in your clinic. So you will still have people who are asexual come in and say, I don't really feel like I have this physical attraction. I hope I'm using the correct terminology, but they feel like something's wrong, but not because it's bothering them, but because society has told them like, this isn't normal. Right. And then you have the separate side of that, which is people who had libido or want to, and it's not there. And all of it is so multifactorial. So I think it kind of goes back to a little bit of what we were saying earlier. You got to know yourself, you got to explore yourself. There's two websites that I've uh, listed and the Rosie app, I think are really great places to start. And you need to dive into, you know, what's going on with the relationship, the mental health. It's it's complex. And I think that's why it gets pushed over a lot. Yeah. So there's a lot of these gummies and scream creams and all sorts of things on the market. Mm -hmm. What do you have to say about it? Gummies for libido is nonsense. Obviously, that's not going to help it. You can't have something that we just talked about was so multifaceted that I've just spent three minutes talking about it and didn't even like scratch the surface and then fix it with a gummy bear, right? That's stupid. We were just talking about how profitable hormone health, women's health, sexual health is on Instagram as a side gig, which is just so wild to me. Right. There's people who do it great and there's doctors who do it great. And then there's people I'm like, oh, man. Screen creams and things like that. There's probably a place for them. I think I would view them more in the line with like sex toys, that it's an individual thing. And yeah, some people do find heightened response or um, a better climax and things like that. So a little different. But And I would just say with those creams, always like test it elsewhere before you put it. Absolutely. Clitoris, vagina, like 
you know, don't ever put anything on your vulva or vagina without making sure, you know, testing it. Right. Absolutely. 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 All right, let's quickly go on to kind of the general gynecology stuff. Let's talk about periods. Let's talk about why women have more loose stools during your period. Yes. So this actually goes both ways, but that is the physiological one that I can reason through. So you have various hormones that are present in higher or lower amounts when you're on your menstrual cycle. And that same hormone stimulates the smooth muscle of the digestive tract and causes period poops. And I think that that's one of the most reaction things people have said when I've mentioned on my channel, because they always felt like they were crazy. Yeah. Like everyone's like, yeah, I feel like that happens too, but I don't know anything about it, but it's definitely a real thing. (laughs) And then a lot of people ask me on my socials, what can you do for period pain? Like how can you make period pain better? And like, you know, half the population is women and many, many women experience significant pain associated with menses. So So the first thing I would say is if you're having menstrual pain that interferes with your ability to live your day-to-day life, then that's something that you need to see your doctor about and talk about. And if that doctor's not helping you, go on, find another one, whatever you need to do, because that's not something I'm going to be able to fix in a YouTube video. I have a YouTube video about PMS that goes through evidence-based fixes for various aspects of PMS. Period pain is one that we actually can do a good amount of help without going to the doctor as long as it's not severe, right? Right. If it's just like, oh God, I wish I could feel a little bit better. But if you're laid up in your bed, that's a different story. Over-the-counter meds can be helpful. I always tell people to go more on the inside side. I, I find it really interesting that there's all of these products specifically marketed towards period pain that include acetaminophen, Tylenol instead of ibuprofen or something like that because it works so much better and we have really good evidence on that Mm -hmm. um so yeah stay on that side with the um sorry does it reduce uterine contractions the NSAIDs it decreases how much progestin is made in general because it's got some activity as like a cox inhibitor and Mm -hmm. it just works better it's anti-inflammatory heat packs are great so we actually have uh, data that says if you compare head-to-head over-the-counter meds to like a warming heat pack, it's equal or superior to use heat pack. Now, obviously, you can double them together, and that's even better. There's some decent data on, it's not quite as good as other data, but there's good data on TENS unit, um, and I've had endo patients, too, who found them very helpful. Exercise is a, is a controversial one. The data would say that exercising can be helpful, but I think in patients that you find that that goes both ways. Mm-hmm. In general, when I talk about exercise, it's having a good cardio routine throughout your cycle, not just when you're on your menstrual cycle. Yeah. Those are the main kind of not having to go to the doctor things. Okay. And then um, what about having sex during your period? Does that help with pain at all? It depends on the person. Orgasm can provide some relief for some people, but some people are, you know, I'm not interested in that because I don't like it or my partner isn't or it actually makes me feel worse, so I don't want to. It's very individual, but there's nothing dangerous or worrisome about it. You know, lay down a towel and yeah. do what makes you happy or, you know, do in the shower or the bathtub. What about an orgasm? You could obviously have an orgasm in isolation without having intercourse or mm-hmm. intercourse. Has anyone looked at that specifically? I'd have to look and see. I mean, I would guess that it provides some relief, even if just from a standpoint of the activation of various nerves and you can't transmit all of the pain signals at the same time as, as pleasure signals. But I don't know about like a lasting I'd have to look into the data. I'm not sure. Last thing. uh, Let's talk about vaginal hygiene. And this is a big one that I get very frustrated about because I also see a lot of patients who 
uh, worry about their hygiene because of recurrent urinary tract infections. But I want to hear you. What? Let's hear what you have to say about vaginal hygiene. Well, I'm sure you tell them all that it has nothing to do with, you know, hygiene doesn't change your urinary tract infection rates. That's a really common misconception. Right. The vagina is a self-cleaning oven. If you've watched any <laughs> gynecology YouTuber, you've heard us or anybody on the internet, if you have us say that, and it needs very little attention as far as cleaning or hygiene goes. So I try to tell people like, just use water, you know, spread the labia, use some water, use your hand and avoid soaps. But if you must, if you must use a soap, which it's not my favorite, but hey, you know, some people really want to, then make sure it is unscented, gentle, something that you would be okay with putting on your face. I would encourage people like just get a face wash, like an unscented dermatologist recommended face wash if you must put some kind of soap down there, but nothing inside. Don't put it in the vagina. No douching, you know, just on the outside. Yes. Your vagina does not need to smell like key lime pie or peaches or anything else that the media tells you to. Because that's really weird. I don't want to smell like a pina colada. That's mm, no, mm -mm. no. And then what about discharge? Like how much discharge is normal? When should people worry? Discharge is normal in the absence of an associated other symptom. So mm -hmm. if you have discharge and you don't have pain, you don't have itching, you don't have an odor, there's nothing else going on, it's probably normal. Yeah. There are very few exceptions to that. You should learn your cycle. So if you're not on any form of external hormones, you can see a predictable change in your discharge through the cycle. So early on, it's, you know, thicker, kind of sticky white. And then as you get closer to ovulation, you'll have like sticky but clear, almost like an egg white consistency. And then after that, significantly less as your progesterone rises after ovulation. So there's a predictable pattern to it. I think for people who are concerned about it or bothered by it, that it's really helpful to learn that and, yeah. and they feel more comfortable. But it's usually normal. And yeah. I think we don't tell kids in like period education that enough because I get a lot of people who are late teens who are really worried about it because nobody's told them that it's normal. And there's also like weird products for discharge, which, you know, you don't need. Yeah. Discharge yeah. is normal and healthy. And like, it's, it's only going to get worse. Yeah. I, and the thing is, is that those are going to throw your microbiome off and then you're going to end up with discharge that is not normal and you have, you know, other symptoms and right. and things like that. Right. So that was actually my next question. Recurrent bacterial vaginosis. I see it more and more because a lot of Recurrent UTI patients also have recurrent yeah. BV because of the microbiome issue. But let's talk a, a little bit about, you know, how can you prevent that? Yeah. I think boric acid is the one thing that like the crunchy community who often does misinformation actually gets right, but not as just, you know, use a boric acid suppository on a whim all the time. I really like induction method with boric acid. So if somebody has recurrent BV, we've now decided, diagnosed it again to pair the metronidazole treatment with boric acid suppositories for the week that you're taking the antibiotic, finish the boric acid out for a month, full month of that, and then do weekly to decrease the incidence of it returning. That can be really helpful. And then weekly till for like a year, like how long? It's individual. So if it's somebody that has never had this problem in the past and it's new, then I'm talking about like, do you have a new partner? Are we, you know, sleeping with more people now? Is something causing that to happen? Because it can in some circumstances, be kind of seated. It's always hard to explain because it's not really an STI, but we do know it has an association with that. So it is a harder one to explain to patients, but that can contribute. So I'm talking to them about that. And then I would say usually maybe six months, go off of it, see what happens. Yeah. It's a fairly innocuous thing to use. So I have a pretty low threshold if someone is happy with that and then they go off of it and 
it happens again to just let them continue it. Yeah. So I don't prescribe it a lot, but I had a partner who would prescribe it often for recurrent UTIs and she had really good results. Mm. But I do. And I, I is there data on that? There's not. There's oh, not. But she had good results with it. Do a study. Yeah, we should. Absolutely. Um, but isn't there a certain amount of time you can't have sex after you use the suppository? I would say you probably would want to use it like at night before you go to bed. And by the time you wake up, it should be fine. Yeah. I don't think it is dangerous, is it? I don't know. I don't know. I, I just remember reading that somewhere that there was a period of time, you know, where you couldn't. Mm. So maybe I'll go back. I only tell people to just use it at night before they go to sleep. And I would think that the only thing would be that it takes time for the suppository to dissolve. So maybe it would disrupt that. Or it is toxic orally. So you certainly wouldn't want to have that and have penis and vagina sex and then move straight to oral. Right. But I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. I, I mean, I certainly don't. We should look this up. We'll look it up. I'll put it in the description. All right. We'll finish off with a rapid round of questions. So just the first thing that comes to mind, what is the one thing that you learned in in your lifetime that you wish you learned earlier? I think the communicating with your partner to make your sex life better part. Okay. Tell me what's one non-negotiable, something that you have to do every single day that if you don't do, you feel incomplete. Brushing my teeth. (laughs) That's a good one. Yeah. That's, That's good. Yeah. But what is one thing that you wish you could do to change the world to be a better place? Reducing maternal mortality around the globe is something I'm very passionate about. And I think we have the tools to do very effectively. And lastly, share either a personal life hack or a health hack that you want our audience to know about. So a lot of people are throwing out underwear that gets period stains. And you can manage that in two ways that are both pretty effective. One, a lot of people know about hydrogen peroxide will take out blood most of the time, but it still sometimes leaves a stain. I really like a meat tenderizer. So powdered meat tenderizer is meant to break down proteins in a steak, right? The same proteins are present in blood. And if you spread that on a period stain, leave it and then wash it like normal, most of the time will come completely out. So save your underwear. That's amazing. I love that. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Danielle. Thank it was you so much. I, I know it was. It was great. Thank you for listening to our podcast. A free and wonderful way to support us is by subscribing to our channel on YouTube or leaving us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you have comments on what you'd like to learn about, please leave them in comments on the YouTube videos or on Instagram. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, and Threads. We hope to see you there. And as always, we're going to take care of yourself because you're worth it.